Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. There has not been a bloodless revolution. I have not kicked Alina and Alex out, but I have somehow found myself in the chair today. And with me is the wonderful Nina. Who have we got on today? Well, today we have got Professor Ewan Rees Morris. Um, and our, our project today is to ask him how to speak to us about his new and fascinating book um, about how the Victorians got us to the moon. And I, for one, am delighted uh, to, to tackle this. I think it's a fascinating subject and uh, Professor, I think you've taken a, a, a really interesting and um, comprehensive look at the subject of Victorians, technology, big changes in culture, and how this uh, has positioned us to, to move into the 20th and the 21st century. Could you give us a, a, a quick summary of, uh, of the, the project and perhaps how you became interested in it? Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm a historian of Victorian science generally. Um, so I've been interested in the relationship between Victorian science and Victorian culture um, for a very long time, for pretty much most of my professional career as a historian. Um, and a few years ago, I was working on a project that was particularly looking at the ways in which people in the past thought about the future. So the history of the future, if you like. And obviously, my part of the, part of the project, given that I am a historian of Victorian science, was looking at Victorian futures. Um, and one of the things that struck me in particular, looking at how ideas about the future developed during the 19th century, was the extent to which, if you like, I mean, and in lots of ways, I, mean, I think this is one of the key messages that I want to get across in the book, that the Victorians invent the future. In anything like the sense that we now, we now ourselves think about the future. Um, if you go back much earlier than the Victorian period, um, say you go back to the middle of the 18th century, um, ask somebody, okay, what's, what are things going to be like in 100 years? Then the likely answer is going to be that, well, things will be much the same, possibly another king on the throne, but other than that, we'll be in the same kind of world. If you hop forward to, say, 1850, well, actually make it 1851, if you stop one of the people going into the... Crystal Palace, the great exhibition in Hyde Park in 1851, and ask them, you know, what do you think it's going to be like in 100 years? Then you're going to get a very, very different answer. 
the future is going to be different. It's not going to be like the present, and for the Victorians by and large, it's going to be made out of it's going to be made out of electricity and flying machines. <laughs> not surprised that's the kind of stereotypical Victorian view of the future. And I think in, in all sorts of ways, you know, that kind of invention of a new sort of future, you know, the kind of future that we think of now, you know, when we think about the future, we think of the future as a different country. The, the Victorians invented that way of thinking. And in many ways, reorient or if I even reinvent science and technology during the 19th century as a way of getting us to that future, as a way of getting themselves into that future so that science and technology become tools of future making in all sorts of interesting ways. And that's what the book tries to cover and unpack. Remarkable and, and, and amazing um, thinking. Um, I know that um, one, of the, one of the points that you, you make in your book is that we forget what a remarkable break with the past this is because we have that perspective now. We absorbed it from the Victorians and we've gone forward with it. And so most of us don't question this perspective about the future, the way we think about the future, the way we plan for the future. So I'm fascinated by this um, remarkable break. And I know that, um, you know, of course, the Victorians are known for their technological innovation, which, of course, is supported by the Industrial Revolution and so on and so forth. But what other factors um, come into it in your mind? Uh, What are the most important things, uh, whether it's thinking, whether it's um, a change in the way that one views religion? um, What can you tell our listeners what the the major factors are that that uh, come together in this ferment and this uh, astonishing change? I think that this notion of the future is different. You know, that thought has a great deal to do with this kind of flurry of technological innovation that takes place. I mean, really, I mean, throughout the 19th century. Um, I mean, it's tied up in some ways with, you know, with, you know, with the idea of progress. You know, sort of, 18th century, the world is, everything is in equilibrium, everything's static. The 19th century has this notion of progress, nature progresses, society progresses, and technology seen as one of the the drivers of change. So there's there's that desire for technological innovation that didn't didn't exist to such a degree before the 19th century. Um, There is also Inevitably, and I think this is another important strand in the story. Um, there's a matter of empire here. Um, Britain, in particular, during the 19th century, has, as a result of kind of imperial adventure, has access to unparalleled resources. You can do things that you couldn't do before because you literally have the resources of empire. At your at your disposal, um, and of course, money. You know, money flows in from the empire as well, and you know, all sorts of from, you know, from all kinds of sources. So, the Victorian age is, a, is an age in which money can be made out of technology. Technology becomes a way of making and remaking the future, and it's entirely bound up with the business of empire. One of the ways in which you know, 
what it is, you know, what it is the science is for, that's kind of reimagined during this period, is you know, science as an arm of imperialism, science as a way of facilitating imperialism. Yeah. And you know, when you look at the kind of huge gargantuan you know, engineering projects that are yeah you know, that take place during during, during the nineteenth century. They're, yeah, they're, 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 yeah, there's an implicit imperial intent in a lot of them. Um, you know, there's something like some Thomas Telford you know, building that you know the huge Pont Cassastain aqueduct across the across the Vale of Dee, you know, describing it in explicitly you know, imperial terms. It's, it's almost as if almost I think they are invoking you know, right, right. You know, the picture of imperial Rome. And kind of projected in, projecting it into Britain's own future. You have business for, for having problems that it then needs engineers and scientists to come up to solu- come up with solutions to, like the uh, the across Atlantic telegraph uh, wires. Um, yes, I mean I think that I mean that, that's that's absolutely right. I mean you get into a position where sort of one thing is building on the other, um, and I think the, I mean the Atlantic cable. I think is a is a is a really nice example of that because I mean it brings together a lot of the ingredients, if you like, of the Victorian future. Um, people are there to make money. Um, you know, people are investing hugely in the Atlantic Cable because the cable they hope is in all sorts of ways going to make their make make their fortune. Um, the Atlantic Cable. Was projected as, and indeed it was, a kind of way of transforming transatlantic commerce and communication in in all sorts of ways. I mean, suddenly, suddenly you can find out in Liverpool or in London very, very quickly, you know, what the price of wheat, shall we say, in Chicago and New York might be. You know, that has a huge impact on the way that you know, in, in the way that trade and the way that finance works. From the middle of the 19th century onwards, and that kind of fuels innovation. You know, other hopeful inventors, other hopeful inventor entrepreneurs, see the success of projects like that and think, "I want that too." So you get that kind of surge of innovation, and of course, as well, the telegraph networks that kind of started off with the Atlantic Cable by the end of the 19th century are a hugely important aspect of imperial governance. Um, by the end of the 19th century, one of the key aims of, uh, of the empire is to establish and maintain what they call the all-red route. Um, and that's literally a network of telegraph cables and uh, 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 that's all that never crosses into or over potentially hostile territory. Right? You don't want to be dependent on your telegraph communications crossing, say, the Ottoman Empire or the Russian Empire right. or right. indeed the United States. <laughs> Britain wants to be in command of the telegraph network. Right. So right. they make sure that they do, you know, that, there are, that there are underwater cables connecting all the various outposts of empire. Yeah. So that they're under secure British control, because to an increasing degree, you know, that's what the telegraph is for. The telegraph is for controlling and governing and administering the empire. 
as a naval historian of the like the early 20th century, uh, working on battleship designs through the 1880s, you get a lot of invention and engineers coming into work on there. Other than business, the, the other main driving force is always the military. How, how much does the Victorian military machine also affect um, science and technology within the um, Victorian era? Um. I mean, the naval connections of science stretch back you know, so well before the the, the 19th century, um, and particularly in terms of, you know, sort of astronomy and navigation. You know, being able to figure out where you are at sea is quite important if you if you're a wannabe naval naval power. So you know, astronomy is an useful tool for that purpose. I mean, one of the things going on with the kind of hideous battles for control of the Royal Society during the 1820s, 1830s, is because the reformers want, you know, want to get their hands on the money that the Admiralty is paying for things like sort of the Board of Longitude and the Nautical Almanac and so on. Um, and more than that, I mean, when you have, you know, for example, during the, during the 1830s and 1840s, there's a big campaign to in our terms, to map the Earth's magnetic field. Um, the reason they want to do that is, again, to improve navigation. The, the, the magnetic field isn't, isn't quite constant. It varies in different places. If you, can, if you can accurately chart those variations, then, again, that's a good way of finding a way around at sea. And that kind of scientific enterprise is entirely dependent on... The Admiralty on on the Navy. It, they're, you know, they're their ships. You know, many of the men of science carrying out the measurements are naval officers. Naval officers are, naval officers are trained to carry out those kinds of those kinds of measurements. Um, and similarly, you know, later you know, when people go off on expeditions to you know, to observe eclipses or to to observe the transit of Venus, you know, that's facilitated by. By, by, by the Navy. And again, it's not done just out of the goodness of the Navy's heart. You know, these things are seen as being potentially useful. And of course, they're also expressions of imperial power you know, carried over. So, you know, we can carry an observatory to wherever and, and discipline those places and make them places where, 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 where science can be done. And yeah, I mean, as you say, I mean, in things like battleship design during the final decades of the 19th century, then yeah, I mean, so, yeah, there, yeah, there are there are small armies of, of naval architects, naval engineers, you know, working to you know, to build these huge new dreadnoughts. They're going to they're going to dominate the seas at the beginning of the twentieth century. Um, and in terms of things like powered flight, you know, that dream of powered flight that you know, that powers much of the Victorian imagination during the nineteenth century. Early pioneers, people like George Cayley, for example, certainly see you know, the flying machines as you know, as part of the armory of empire, if you like. And it's very, very noticeable. I mean, if you, I mean, if you look at you know, what we would call science fiction, what Victorians would call scientific romance um, by the end of the 19th century, um, speculation about fears surrounding war in the air and the possibilities yeah, yeah. of aerial warfare kind of dominate that kind of fiction. I mean, it's, you know, by, you know, by the end of the 19th century, everybody thinks that another war is coming. 
pretty much. Um, there's some disagreement as to who the protagonists on the different side might be. Um, sometimes it's Britain versus France. Sometimes it's Britain and France versus Germany. Sometimes it's Britain and France versus Russia. But everybody thinks that war is inevitable. And similarly, everybody thinks that in the case of war, if some, if, if one of the great powers gets their hands on flying machines before the rest, then you know, that's it. You know, control of the air would mean domination of Europe, and that kind of plays get, that gets played out in in all kinds of you know, fantastic scientific romances you know, in popular news, in popular magazines, in novel forms. And there's actually an intimate connection between. Technology, warfare, imperial power, and what technology can offer. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Kelly, so you, uh, that was one of the questions that we, we did want to uh, we did want to raise, and that is that um, you you mentioned, of course, and you spend a bit of time in the in the book talking about the conflict uh, between the, the 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 old traditional and the new innovative scientists in the fight for control of the Royal Society. Um, it, given given that, and given the 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 struggle for um, professionalism, if you will, or proper credentialing. What? How much impact did the the sort of um, more eccentric or the the folks who were not necessarily conforming to the new structure of science? What kind of an impact did some of these innovative thinkers have? You've argued in a previous work about Tesla, for example, that one of the reasons that Tesla doesn't succeed as as Edison does is because Tesla consciously was an outsider and consciously wanted to to depict himself as a as a solo operator you know kind of a giant of technology on his own so um we were curious about how that were there similar struggles or similar contributions made by uh the the more eccentric and i'm not conforming with the 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 imperial project um during this era um, I mean, I think in that respect, I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the story of powered flight or the efforts of powered flight right. uh, is, is quite revealing. Um, I mean, take someone like George Cayley, you might mm-hmm. just mentioned, who is fascinating in lots of ways because he's both an insider and an outsider. 
Um, hmm. I mean, he's a Yorkshire landlord, not really the kind of person you'd imagine as an as an engineering innovator. Right. But he's fascinated by flying machines, uh, both of the lighter and lighter than air and and heavier than air varieties. Um, he is a member of the Institution of Civil Engineers, and he's deeply involved in establishing the Royal Polytechnic Institution. So he has his kind of place in the in the institutional structure of of, 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 of Victorian science and invention, if you like. Um, and it's hugely influential. I mean, the Wright brothers look back at Cayley as one of the kind of great innovators of, 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 of flight. Um, but yeah, then you have others. I mean, people like um, William Henson and John John Stringfellow. I mean, this, I mean, this is this is brilliant. Um, one of my favourite images in the in the book. Um, if you go and leaf through it and find it, it is an image of Stringfellow and Henson's aerial steam carriage flying over flying over the Nile with with, with the pyramids in in the background. Um, it's a fantastic image. It's completely made up, of course. There's no such thing as 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 a, as a flying steam engine. Um, but again, I mean, Stringfellow and Henderson have patented the aerial steam carriage. Um, they've invented a new lighter steam engine that they hope will be light enough to take it up into the sky. Um, they're not coming from nowhere. Um, they both have backgrounds in 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 in, in making lace making machinery. You know, so, you know, so they're mechanics. You know, they you know, they know how, you know, how how stuff works. Um, they patented the thing. Uh, they try and set up a company. And you know, that image we have that image because one of the things they did you know, to try and advertise and bring it and, you know, and bring in finance um, was produce this series of trade cards. Showing the showing the the aerial steam carriage flying over various cityscapes and landscapes. I mean, I like the Nile one because you know, there's that kind of evocation of empire and expansion in 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 that image. So all of those things are kind of bound up together. Um, but yeah, I mean, they never make it. The aerial steam carriage, sadly, never never really makes it off the ground. I mean, there are constant efforts throughout the 19th century by people with various kinds of relationships, shall we say, to 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 side of the institutions you know, to you know, to make that dream of flying come come true. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think I mean, there's an interesting paradox, I think, here, in that I mean, increasingly during the 19th century, you see this myth. And it really is a myth of the individual innovator you know, becoming more and more established. Um, you know, in 1859, Samuel Smiles publishes publishes Self Help, you know, that kind of bible of the Victorian middle classes. You know, how to, how to improve yourself, how to make yourself better, built around this notion of individualism. You've got to do it by yourself. You know, that's that's the mark of, of masculinity and Inventors are the, you know, are the are the heroes of self help in all sorts of ways. So you get this kind of myth of the individual innovator, the individual inventor who's going to change the world. 
Of course, at the same time, that's not actually how Victorian science and engineering worked. Um, If we take something like the like the Atlantic Cable, again, um, there is a name associated with the Atlantic Cable. This is Cyrus Field's dream. This is Cyrus Field's project. But kind of underneath that kind of individualist gloss, well, actually, there are armies of dozens, if not hundreds, of engineers, electricians, all sorts of people working together to make something like that into a into a reality. Um, or take something like that, you know, you know, that kind of iconic image, and I'm sure it's going to be familiar to, to lots of your listeners, of Isambard Kingdom Brunel. You know, yes, there we yes. have Brunel in his stovetop hat, chomping a cigar, you know, standing in front of the of, of the anchor chains of, of the Great Eastern. You know, that's a kind of you know, epitome of the Victorian inventor, this kind of rugged, individualist, gargantuan. You know, he's going to make things that are bigger than, than anybody's ever made them before. And those are the heroes. But, I mean, behind that, of course, again, you know, as with... You know, the people who made dreadnoughts at the end of the 19th century. You know, these aren't solo projects. There are hundreds, there are thousands of people labouring to build these ships. And they're not just labourers, they're just, you know, these are highly skilled, trained people. And it's that that makes invention and innovation possible. Again, I think is one of the important messages of the book. When we think about, you know, where we are now, when we think about our own futures now and who's so to speak, responsible for our futures. That was something I noticed. Um, I was reading late in the book, and it is a it is a, a point that you do make in your epilogue, which is a very strong one, is how this is a not just a masculine ideal, but very clearly a particular class and type of man, and that it continues to be bound up in, despite this new vision of the future, that it's very much a technological shift and that that in a sense becomes a substitute for societal change. In other words, in order for these, these amazing technologies and for this new vision of the future to actually occur and come to pass, the technology appears to have to stay bound in, in, you know, to a certain extent, the old order of class individual empire and there is no room for clearly no room for women clearly no room for anyone who is not uh english clearly no room for anybody who is not of a particular class or cannot lift themselves by their bootstraps into that particular class so um i'm uh part of my work is social history and so i'm fascinated by the amazing technological innovations and this new way of thinking which still needs to embed itself in the current imperial structure and that ultimately i think one of the points and please correct me if i'm wrong one of the points you make is that it it's it is it, we need to recognize that and perhaps and shift from that if we're in fact going to move forward into an even better future um yes i mean I'm glad you got that because that really, <laughs> that really is where I want to where I went where I want to end up with with, with the book. Um, and yes, I mean we still think about the future. I think very much using that kind of rule book that the Victorians invented, and I think it's important that we remember that 
Um, and that's what I'm trying to remind people of in, in the book. Yes. Because yeah, embedded in that way of thinking about the future, embedded in that way of doing things, are some old, very often relatively unexamined assumptions about how obviously, how self-evidently things should get done and what kind of people should do them. That actually we might want to examine a little bit more carefully and think, well, is this really how we want to do things now? Around about the end of the 19th century, um, unsurprisingly, um, there's a flurry of interest in the year 2000, you know, coming up to the year 1900. In another year, in another century, it's going to be the year 2000. So not just another, just not just the end of another century, but the end of a of another millennium. Um, so there's a lot of speculation about you know, what things will be like in in, in the year 2000. Um, and you get artists' impressions, for example, of the year 2000, um, which are full of strange and wonderful machines and technologies. Um, of all kinds. Uh, there are flying machines. Everything works by electricity. They've invented a thing they call the telectroscope. Um, immediately after 1876, when Alexander Graham Bell invents the telephone, people start talking about, oh, we'll soon have the telectroscope, which is basically a way of seeing at a distance as well. So rather than going to the opera, you just sit at home and the opera will be projected into your into your into your into your into your drawing room um so these wonderful renderings of kind of future tech but what's very striking when it eventually dawns on you what it is you're looking at is how the people doing things with these new technologies are dressed you know, this is the year 2000 they're all dressed like middle-class members of society at the end of the 19th century. In other words, very, very strongly, I think, the message being conveyed, yes, this is the future, and this is a future for people like you. I mean, that's what, that's what that all means. That's, that's what's going on here. So, yes, I mean, these are visions of the future. There are futures for, basically, the white middle classes. And I think that we need to be aware now as we contemplate our own futures that we should remember where these sorts of ways of thinking come from and think about how we might want to adapt our institutions, adapt our ways of thinking about you know, how futures are made and who futures belong to. Um, not only sort of their more collective that they're more you know, you know they're better related to you know the lives people now actually live uh live but, but because we can make better futures i think like that as well you know by opening up possibilities that are closed off if we just think well you know future making is basically a game for white middle-class men well you know there are other visions out there and life at the very least I think would be more interesting if you know, those alternative visions were were given an opportunity as well. Ewan this has been really really interesting I wish we could have uh, more time this is 
this is a subject that I could probably sit here all day and listen to. But um, would you mind uh, reminding our listeners uh, the title of your, of your book and where they can get it? Um, the book is called How the Victorians Took Us to the Moon. And it is, I hope, available in all good bookshops, in all good bookstores, and in very, very many places online. Uh, it's available as a hardback, it's available on Kindle, and it's available as an audiobook. So Terrific. we'll try and get it on, onto our uh, online bookstore as well, so that when, uh, when, when you buy it, when our listeners buy the book, and you should, because I've read it as well and it's fantastic, not only will History Hat get a small cut, but you and I'll get a bigger cut than the guys at Amazon. <laughs> we'll only waste it on space rockets anyway. We want a book on how Victorians get to the moon, not how Jeff Bezos gets to the moon. So, uh, <laughs> Nina and Ewan, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thank you. This was yeah, an- my pleasure. Indeed, a pleasure. Uh, greatly appreciated to be included in co-host today. And thank you so much, Professor. That was a fascinating discussion. And along with Chris, oh my, I have so many other questions, but so I'll be sure to finish the book and, uh, and take it from there. Thank you again. Okay, thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.